KZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I am Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about housing, the processes that are behind housing, and the processes behind those processes. Today in the program, we have on Victoria Fierce to talk all about the RENA Methodology Committee and other nuts and bolts of how that is running, as well as a recent election to the Democratic Central Committee and some bigger ideas about uh, anarchism. So, all across the board. So let's uh, let's just get into it. So welcome back, Victoria. Thank you. So Rena, Rena, uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 a very big deal. Uh, so before we start off with anything, uh, what is the pitch for people who've never heard of Rena? What Rena is and why they should care. Uh, Rena is uh, more than just the new trend drug that party goers are doing. It is the regional housing needs allocation. Uh, system. And uh, I am a member of the Regional Housing Needs Allocation Methodology Committee within the Association of Bay Area Governments, or abag Rena for short. Yeah. Um, and what it is, is, you know, every eight years or so, um, depends on, you know, the city, uh, throughout California, regions have to create these, uh, the, these housing allocation numbers. And they kind of, you know, it's planning for how big your population going to grow. Um, which, for example, you know, right now we're in this this new cycle, they call it, every eight years. And the last cycle, the city of Atherton got about six total housing units, um, which includes like market rate, low income, all that. Which for a place that's, you know, kind of the most expensive place on the planet, you'd think they need to build a little more affordable housing. Well, they don't. Um, and, you know, now I'm on the methodology committee this year where we get to decide not so much what those numbers are, but rather how we decide what those numbers are. Yeah, so I mean, this has been around ostensibly, I think, since 1969. Uh, but for most of all time, it had like one, it's been run terribly, and two, it hasn't actually mattered until very, very recently. Because mm-hmm. I mean, as far as everyone had to like reapply every couple of years, you have to create your housing element, which is zoning plus. Well, what else goes into that other than just like your zoning plans? Yeah, so so the housing element is uh, just one part of what's called the general plan. And a lot of people like to call the general plan the constitution of your city, which I think is a garbage description of it. Um, and what a general plan is, that it's you know it's kind of like zoning, but in broader strokes. And it's like you know the housing is going to go here, commercial will go over here. You know whether or not you think those two should be separate. Uh, and then they've got these other elements in it. You know, one's transportation element. How's you know the the people getting around? One's kind of the the uh, green space and open space kind of environmental element. And the biggest one, the one that's like kind of the most regulated, is the housing element, and that includes uh, cities as part of Rena. You know, if they give them you know 100 units of affordable housing they have to build, the city is required by law to find specific sites within their jurisdiction that they can put those units, uh, which means that they're already zoned for for that kind of density and housing, and they know it's you know economically feasible to build. There's maybe some interest in it, and they have to put that into their housing element, into their general plan, and then. That's, you know, a big part of Rena is, you know, not just giving them the numbers, but they have to do the homework and show that they will at least try to meet their numbers. And there's, I, as I understand, there's a lot of ways that this, you know, is insufficient itself. You can always hide your capacity in weird places. You can, of course, have a really restrictive plan that makes your zone capacity not exist in reality. Mm-hmm. But at least your zoning plan can't, even in a best case scenario, fall short of what your design, which, as you say, case a place like Atherton, and most places, is, in fact, very, very short. Uh, so, as, as I mean, do you still describe yourself as an anarchist? 
So, so yes, I do. Yes, and I, I think it's just it's funny, and I think it's it's good. Uh, I, I think <laughs> the best kind of anarchists are up for for anything because mm-hmm. I think Rena is probably the like it is the least anarchistic thing out there. It reminds yeah, me, of, yeah. it's a lot like Goss Plan to me or something. <laughs> just you know, the yeah. Sov- you know, the Soviets plan everything from the top down. Uh, and as I understand, like Gavin Newsom is like been running on his whole like we need 3.5 million houses. And mm. as far as I understand, that is not just the campaign pitch, but in fact, what is going into the the overall California regional housing need determination. Is that correct, or is 3.5 not exactly one to one to that? Uh, I don't think it's exactly one to one. I don't think we, or at least the Bay Area itself, doesn't have our our specific. Uh, let me let me back up a step. So kind of like the first step of Reno is that the state figures out what each region has to build. And I think it was for like LA region or, or San Diego or something. It was like a couple million, which is like twice as big as it's been in the last one. Yeah, I think it was like, I think it's the SCAG, which mm-hmm. is which is the entire Los Angeles region, but not San Diego, I think, Yeah, uh, is like 1.4 million, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's something big. And so the state has to, you know, make this regional number, give it to the, the group that makes it. Um, but the Bay Area hasn't had its number uh, given to us just yet. And most most places in the state, outside of a few, are done by a county basis, but we have a few regional, and that's SCAG, which mm-hmm. is, you know, yeah, yeah. for Southern California, ABAG, uh, which is us in the Bay Area, Monterey mm-hmm. is the region. Uh, here's a question. Has this changed with, because uh, a few years ago, uh, SBA 28 reformed the arena process. Can you go into detail about what exactly has changed and how that's affect what you're do- doing yeah, now? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, like you said, though, this process has been around since the 60s or 70s or something like that. And for all this time, you know, building these arena numbers was entirely just like a political horse trading process. And even then, there wasn't really any consequence to not doing it. Um, you know, then it just turns into this like big stick that, you know, the, the left and the right use each other to beat each other over the head and say, well, look, we've only built market rate housing. We haven't met our numbers, even though there's not actually, a, you know, a, a legal consequence for doing that. So some of the recent changes, um, some people may have heard about this. Uh, uh, an example here is, is uh, this Valco development, this Valco mall down in Cupertino. And uh, it's related to Rena because of this other law called SB 35 that was passed. And uh, before SB 35, you know, these numbers didn't have to be based in any reality, so to speak. And they were just a legal fiction. And it was like literally, it was like a slap in the wrist. It was yeah, literally yeah. just a chastisement. You yeah. Can, yeah. Yeah. And that was it. Um, and now uh, there's, you know, some consequences. SB 35 beefed up the reporting for those numbers and, and put some other like funding strings attached to it. But probably the one that's like the most punishing and most terrifying to suburbanites is that if you have not actually met your your arena numbers for uh you know the, the affordable housing classes then you're required to have this like buy right approval process for very large development projects that include uh i think majority affordable housing and that's kind of what uh, the developer in cupertino is doing is that they came forward with an idea and city council shut it down sb35 got passed and lo and behold Surprising absolutely nobody, Cupertino's not met their numbers. They would have not have built a single yeah. housing unit there if not for SB 35. Yeah, so now the developer came back with another idea and said, we're going to build this thing, and there's literally nothing you can do to stop this, uh, which is true. And, you know, of course, you know, people with money is want to do. They are fighting it out in court. Um, but I don't think they're going to get very far, and I think we're going to end up with a bunch of affordable housing in a city that's banned it for years. It's it's really uh, fun. I was at uh, Paul City Council a few weeks ago, and they were talking about 
where they're doing and hitting their arena targets. And here's like a thing too. I mean, it's kind of bad and gross, but it, that the amount of affordable housing is kind of raised and dropped as a way of making it harsher. Mm-hmm. And because here's the thing: like affordable housing is great for society, but it's less likely to happen. So if you make it fifty percent which mm-hmm. is where you are now for a Cupertino or a Palo Alto who's not mm-hmm. like hitting it, you're not going to see that much of it. But if Palo Alto continues doing worse, they'll drop to the next run of punishment, which is by right at 10% affordable housing, yep. uh, which they're going to see a ton of that, yep. uh, perhaps get the overall affording ho- affordable housing numbers up, so I wouldn't worry too much about the percentage mm-hmm. uh, because they're getting zero of 50% right now. Right, yeah. Uh, but it's just like, boy, it's so gratifying to see Palo Alto City Council have to actually say, oh, we're not doing great, guys, and there are consequences, because until now, there's been nothing. I know. It's great. Like, these wealthy communities are finally experiencing consequences for the first time in their life for anything. Yeah. And, but, okay, so it, I feel this happens a lot, which is, uh, let's talk about SB 828, and then we start talking about SB 35. What exactly are the nuts and bolts of SB 828? Because I've never really kind of understood exactly what the details of that are. Uh... That's a question I don't think I actually have the answer to. Um, it's kind of been an older law, and like uh, my day job work, I'm working on the, all these ADU laws and stuff. So I've yeah. kind of forgotten about what that bill does. I honestly. mean, you're you're in the midst of the Reno process yeah, now, yeah. but not a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I think you probably are experiencing. Yeah. The well, so, so 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 let me back up. I, I I know the changes to Reno that have happened. I don't know specifically what bill came about. Sure. But I, I think the change that you're talking about is uh, so now there's these these statutory requirements for the process, and again, these are brand new. We never had to do this before. It includes things like reducing segregation, reducing wealth inequality. And these are like, you know, we are required to show the homework that the numbers we're coming up with are going to promote that kind of change, which we never had to do before. So, okay. So you are, you, you got uh, appointed to the methodology committee. Yep. Uh, I also, I mean, this was an application open to anybody. I, I, I tried and failed. Uh, and I, uh, I'm, I'm glad, uh, <laughs> I'm glad we got, uh, you know, good people <laughs> in there. Although uh, it's like only a few things because I, I remind me, there's like all these different categories. Are, were mm-hmm. you under like equity? Yeah. Or? I'm one of the, yeah. So I'm one of the, the equity groups or the equity appointees. Um, there's also uh, there's a couple people from the state in Sacramento who are really more observers than actual appointees. And then there's a whole set of like elected officials, um, like Mayor Jesse Aragina Berkeley is on it. Um, and then there's uh, city staff from various jurisdictions. For example, Darren Ranelli, who's the uh, for, for works for Mayor Schaff in Oakland uh, as the uh, city's housing security director. Is I mean, and this is ABEX. This is the entire. Is it, do you feel? Because I, I've you've complained in the past that I, you may be the only renter in the entire committee. Uh, that's not entirely true. Okay, but it's good you bring that up because uh, it's, it's it's at least not yeah, yeah. balanced based upon oh, the actual yeah. constituency. Yeah, like on the so on the first day that we had our meetings, uh, we were doing this like live polling test thing with our mobile phones, and like one of the questions just to test it out, put people through spaces. You know, are you a renter or are you a homeowner? And, uh, you know, I think at this meeting, there's maybe 40 some people, you know, not everybody shows up at the same time and it comes and goes. But of the, of the people that were there, uh, I think it was myself, Jesse Aragine, and maybe like two other people who are renters and like the other 35 plus are mm-hmm. all homeowners, which was distressing. But also, you know, it's kind of nice that, you know, Jesse Aragine and I, you know, we've sparred on Twitter for a long time. We at least have that in solidarity. 
Yeah, I mean, and to comment on that, I mean, Jesse Aragain has always been kind of, I mean, the people in Berkeley, they always spar with him because he is a young guy. He's mm-hmm. a renter. He takes the bus. But, like, his entire political identity is kind of uh, at least described as sucking up to the homeowners of, of Berkeley. Uh, is is that been an issue or has that even shown itself in this or in like or just as chairman how's jesse been doing in your mind if, if you're uh, in any capacity to say i mean as chair of rena there's not a whole lot to do like i i actually think of all the people in the committee jesse is the best chair just you know i think jesse runs a really good meeting as an anarchist who runs meetings i think jesse's really good at that so i'm glad he's our chair I mean, the chair of the arena committee is not a whole lot. You, like, open up the session, you say, here's what we did last time, here's what we're doing today, and then you just like, kind of mentally check out for three hours, and then you close the meeting at the end. Okay, but so to go into, I guess, the nuts and bolts of these meetings, there's been a number of these, and the the overall idea is they bring in all these different, you know, stakeholders and yeah. advocates, and you are going to produce the overall allocation of the numbers to different cities like... Palo Alto? Yeah. Uh, I mean, more or less, that's kind of the way to look at it. Uh, I'm kind of a stickler in that it's not we're determining the numbers, we're determining how we figure out the numbers, which I think is actually a better approach to it, because if we're just thinking about the numbers, you know, then it just could be more horse trading, yeah. and people are going to say, oh, well, well, you know, you just you just want to put more numbers here because you're you're an awful person who hates the rich, which, true, but that's, you know, I don't that's not a fight we have to have. So what we're really doing is, like, essentially building this large polynomial equation of here's the inputs of, uh, you know, how much transit a certain area has, how much uh, jobs they've created, this, this, and that, and plug in the numbers into this massive spreadsheet, and then you come out on the other side, and here's your number that you get for your for your city. So, I mean, I was about to say, you know, this is more or less designing the algorithm, but mm-hmm. you're, you're even saying, is it really a polynomial, literally, at the end? It, it, it is, actually. Uh, I mean, it's just, like, uh, like one of the factors uh, that was in the last one was uh, kind of how many jobs were created, which, again, if you look at Atherton, which does not create jobs, necessarily, that's also why they got such a low number, because they didn't make any jobs. So the system worked last time, it just didn't have any objectives that were good. Yeah. So, okay. In general, let's, I mean, Atherton is, is I think the worst, like probably the worst actor in the entire Bay Area, mm-hmm. but Palo Alto is nearer to my heart. Uh, I, I saw someone like Palo Alto right now has their own self-inflicted target of 300 uh, homes per year, uh, which I think was pointed out, like if they want to hit a jobs housing balance of 1.5, that would take 200 years of building 300 uh, per year. Yep. What's a more reasonable number would probably be you know, it could be based on a lot of things, getting jobs, mm-hmm. housing fixed. It could be things like looking at land values. It could. But uh, in, in your mind, uh, what are the most important variables going into this? How are you determining how to weight those variables? And in the end, uh, you know, how much will inertia necessarily still stop the perfect solution from being implemented? Uh, so as far as like the, the variables that go into it, um, so what we did at our last meeting was kind of really get into the, to the thick of that. And a lot of what it looks like in practice for, for us on the committee is you know, we have our, our big meeting space and they have all these maps posted around the area or around the walls. And I wish I could have brought some in. Uh, well, but, listeners can't see them, so uh, I, I know, but it's useful for me to think about. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and there, so there's like a you know a big map of the Bay Area with different colors, and like one is uh, 
what percentage of the population in the census tract has access to high-frequency transit within, like, a quarter mile or something like that. It sounds similar to the maps used for SB50 and stuff. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, one, you know, that, that's just one, and that's actually one that I really think is not a great idea. Because um, when we were looking at the maps for that particular metric, uh, if again, if you would look at look at Atherton, Palo Alto, all these places, you know they've got really high quality transit accessible to a really small number of people, which means that in turn they would get uh, allocated less housing to be built. So what I ended up doing uh, through you know this process, and I actually got the change in, is that it's no longer uh, you know, quality transit per person, but quality transit per area of land. Mm. Right. So if you can fit more people in a space, that's more people have access to transit versus if you have, you know, six people in an area, sure, they, you know, there's not a lot of people riding transit. No, no, no dip. Like the the answer is, you know, build more housing and get more people access to that transit. And that's what, what, what we got to change to. I mean, look at the Hong Kong model, the best subway in, in the world, I would say. And it has giant towers right next to the subway. That's, yep. that's no coincidence. So, I mean, I think there's how would you say in, in like uh, in like Oakland, for example, how has Oakland been doing historically? How is Oakland affected? Because I feel if anything, you know, the bad actors are probably putting a lot more weight I mean, mm-hmm. on the gentrification displacement of places like Oakland, yeah, and yeah. How, how is the methodology going to affect them? Um, so a lot of cities, Oakland included, have completely blown past their market rate, or, or rather their, their above moderate income, their, their unsubsidized housing goals. Uh, so on that front, Oakland's been doing great. As far as affordable housing, I think last I checked, we're on, goal, or we're on, on track to, to meet our goal by uh, 2,275 or something. So not doing great. Um, but you know, the city has been working on these other policies to, to really make that happen. Um, I think there's, you know, the real change is going to have to come from the state level because, uh, Oakland's big project, big problem isn't necessarily a lack of political will for people to build things. Like we've got a lot of zoned capacity for, for affordable housing and all that. It's entirely funding and, uh, scrounging together the money for that. So, you know, something like a, a statewide regional tax sharing, uh, body, which, is sort of what got approved in the last legislative session, this regional housing entity, which can uh, levy taxes on the Bay Area as a region and then turn that into affordable housing money, you know, uh, which kind of nips the problem in the bud of San Francisco having so much more money than God and being able to tax some of that. But none of that money ends up going right across the Bay to Oakland, who inevitably for the last decades has been building the housing that San Francisco hasn't been doing. And we don't see any affordable money for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You mentioned earlier that there's kind of you know, Rena can be criticized on two two fronts: the you know, the right and the left. The right wing critique I see in politics all the time, which is they just go up to it's like these Rena numbers, like they're unfair. They're just coming down from these bureaucrats, and like these are already extremely favorable to Paul Alto's numbers, and mm-hmm. they're still complaining. So uh, when these go up, uh, I'm looking for a huge uh, blowback. Uh, but the left critique is you know, Rena numbers. Everyone's hitting their market rate. They're above moderate, and they're not hitting the mm-hmm. bottom numbers. You can look at this. I think the most naive and bad way to look at it is say we're building enough market rate housing. Rena says so. I think that's pretty goofy. Yeah. But I'd say the more charitable way to say, no matter if it's enough or not, look at the distribution. Mm-hmm. And like we certainly across the board, nobody's building enough affordable housing. Yep. And I mean, I think I don't know if it's realistic to think like. Uh, 
you know, SB 35 is the first time we've ever had consequences, but unfortunately, it's only consequences for above moderate units. Mm-hmm. Could you just expand this to every level, or is that like just going to make cities blow up? And like Oakland says, you you know, we can't build it. We don't have the money. I, I don't I don't know what's gonna what well, <laughs> if that's a really stupid idea or not. Um, I think it's possible to to expand it to apply to that. Um, I think. Uh, what I've heard, uh, you know, the scuttlebutt in Sacramento is people are trying to, to if they're going to add more penalties, it would be something like withholding uh, street paving funds, mm. uh, withholding just other bits and buckets of money that, that we can do for people who, for cities who don't meet their goals. And so, you know, we don't want to do the stupid thing of, you know, withholding affordable housing money if you can't build affordable housing. Because, like, who does who does that help, right? Yeah. Um, but what we could do, you know, is is uh, withhold some money for paving their streets, things that uh, the wealthier kind of people use, um, and then kind of turn that into, you know, more evidence that we need to prioritize funding and direct it into these parts of the Bay. As far as like, I mean, the biggest sticks to look at, I mean, this is this is more relevant for the kind of exclusionary cities. I think one of the biggest kind of maybe anarchic principles is like the right to kind of like secede, the right to self-determination. <laughs> yeah. But for municipalities, it's been like the exact worst thing because when you actually control land, having the right to secede into Palo Alto and mm-hmm. Atherton is not good. And I mean, I honestly think any real framework has to look at the real big kahuna, which is forced annexation. And yes. I, I, I just don't, are you actually, I mean, do you think this is something reasonable that people are really pushing for? Or is it just like in the weirdo territory right now? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's in the weirdo territory. It, it's kind of funny you mentioned, uh, you know, this like secession sort of idea of the ultimate anarchist goal. Because I've actually gotten into fights with other self-identified anarchists who look, you know, when I propose, well, you know, Palo Alto, Atherton, they're not responsible enough for their their police powers. They can't really regulate themselves in a way that benefits the rest of us. So we should take that away. And then, you know, normally these these lefty liberal types who are all, you know, we yeah, we should build affordable housing. Suddenly, you know, talk about infringing on Palo Alto sovereignty and they're, you know, holy crap, hold on a second. You know, everybody is entitled to self-determination. Yes, especially the rich people. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the the end cap, which is that you serve, you you mm-hmm. rights to secede and, and govern what are essentially shared resources is in rights to the powerful, uh, as opposed to yeah, just looking at how do you maintain resources when you really need to share them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's hard, and it really kind of means that. There's no real good answer. For yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think Rena is going to be like a good way. Like, I, I support the idea of disincorporating cities and kind of merging services, because um, we don't necessarily need 101 different planning departments and staff and directors, and yet we do for one region to plan. But I think. Uh, you know, looking down the road is that a lot of these cities, they're going to run into these huge budget crises because we just simply can't tax our people. You know, schools and communities first is ballot prop coming out in November. If that passes, that'll be good. But it'll mostly go to, to school districts and it won't certainly won't be enough to fill in uh, these like pension back holes that a lot of people are, are talking about. And I think... Uh, one way to do that as like a you know an engineer person who hates duplicating work 
is kind of merge these places together to save some costs and save some expenses and then you know use that as well you 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 can't raise taxes on your people so i guess you just don't get a government you're just going to merge in and you're going to have to share you're going to have to learn how to share government i mean i think it's funny we have not even in the midst of not being the midst of a recession 2008 brought a lot of city finances to his knees Mm. but even a few years ago i think it's the funniest thing moraga uh, which is, I, I think, median income well over 100,000, uh, wealthy, exclusionary uh, city, uh, went bankrupt or was on the verge of bankruptcy. Yep. Uh, and boy, if there's a recession, we're going to see that in so many oh, yeah. places. And Absolutely. I think we should get ahead of it and say, hey, you know, time to actually uh, you know, knuckle down on these exclusionary cities because mm-hmm. we're going to have the leverage. Yeah, for sure. Like it, it's coming, and you know, there's 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 just no reason for us to be spending six million dollars on, you know, six different planning departments when we could spend three million on one for them to share, and then spend three million other on you know housing, nice things. Yeah, especially because I mean, right now in the best of times, even the Palo Altos, the Sunnyvales are having trouble staffing their planning departments. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I I, I completely yeah. uh, think it would be a net goal to have a bag just oversee us all. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why Oakland's been doing kind of really bad on affordable housing is we just don't have the staff to process a lot of this stuff, which we could if we had some of San Francisco's tax money or Berkeley's tax money. But you know, us being a city full of people who are much poorer than the region, there's not a lot of money there, and you know. Nobody likes sharing in California. Yeah. I mean, it's that is very funny in like certainly the bigger picture. Uh, San Francisco is at the center of everything. It always is. And Allegedly. Francisco, well, just as far as the discourse goes. Uh, and, you know, San Francisco always portrays itself as like, oh, it's the poor. It's the poor city. Everyone's going through displacement. It objectively, by every measure, is, is doing far better than Oakland across mm-hmm. the board in aggregate. And certainly, even if you look at, you know, Hunter's Point and the mission, San Francisco usually tends to overlook the fact that it has its share of extremely ritzy suburbs within oh, yeah. itself. Uh, I mean, is is there much, I mean, is there much Oakland can be, you know, I think is fighting back or is actually getting more of the narrative of saying Oakland is really a much more coherent victim here being a... Uh... I just think people just love to pay attention to San Francisco. Oh, yeah. No, they they absolutely do. Um, what I think is interesting as far as, like, the politics of this is, like, yeah, people look at San Francisco and, you know, you've got a lot of money. It's also where the discourse is centered. And that's actually, I think, part of the problem is that it is very centralized around this place and it's not very regional. And uh, a lot of East Bay politicians and, and uh, I think London Breed in a bit, too, um, are, you know, they're all part of or a number of them are part of ABAG, the Association of Bay Area Governments, and others are part of MTC, the Transportation Commission. And a lot of them are using this now as kind of uh, this, this bully puppet of, we need to think as a regional thing. You know, we're not living in the 1970s anymore where, you know, you don't know anybody from the town over just because you don't have Twitter at the time. Now we do, and we got to start thinking like that. And, you know, that's, I think, where a lot of the the more interesting politics is going to be happening. It's not going to be at the local planning commission. It's going to be at the MTC, where, you know, one of my favorite memories of MTC actually was a a recent meeting where Libby Schaff is up up there, my mayor. And there's this other uh, city councilor from somewhere in suburbia who's like, oh, I I don't understand. What do we what? I don't understand. We don't have a housing shortage. I don't have any information on this during a presentation showing a bunch of graphs about how bad we're doing. So Libby Schaff freaking stands up. And like smacks this paper in this guy's face and is like, this is why we have a shortage. And like, 
you know, a lot of people in Oakland give Libby garbage for for doing what she does. But like, you know, she really is fighting regionally for regional answers and, you know, telling these suburban people off and like fighting for the right stuff. And I think that's really where we're going to get the answers less so than like, you know, focusing on San Francisco or, or trying to change this narrative. Historically, as far as I understand, ABAG was a lot less powerful until a few years ago, MTC took it over, merged with it. I don't really mm-hmm. understand. Like, well, what exactly happened? Uh, good question. I, I don't fully <laughs> understand either. It's it's impossible to understand all these yeah, yeah. different orgs. Uh, I, th- I think, like, it's less interesting to think about, like, what happened, but more, like, what the long-term plan is that they're working on. Yeah. Is, uh, over time, they want to call themselves Bay Area Metro, which mm. I think is a great name. Um, you know, instead of ABAG, MTC. And, and a few years ago, they, they did some kind of merging where these two organizations started sharing staff as like the first step and now they're sort of like weeding out or not really weeding out i guess but like consolidating you know rendering people redundant so to speak and merging these staff together because yeah abag and mtc do a lot of the same functionality but uh there's also just interesting history about why that is and it has a lot to do with freeways actually and any more to say? Yeah. <laughs> That's a hell of a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. So uh, back uh, when the freeways are starting, um, and I might be a little little cloudy on these details, but back like when, when, when they're expanded or when they actually first, like, first a two-lane whatever? Uh, I don't know exactly when, yeah. but it was certainly when they were expanding. Sure. Um, it might have been a little bit before. And the way that the funding for these freeways worked is you had to have a, a council of government, or a regional council of governments, a COG. And the reason for that specific design of, you know, each region, if they want their money, they got to have a body that's going to manage it, was actually inspired by ABAG starting out. So ABAG was created by the Bay Area governments to be some kind of like a Senate to figure out regional planning and allocate money and do some kind of sharing. And the federal government looked at that and said, oh, that's a great model. Well, we're going to require everybody to do you know, highway funding through that because they're kind of a regional issue. And now we're kind of got this, you know, this ABAG thing sticking around for a long time. And then MTC, which has a slightly different purpose. And now it's kind of like, you know, catching up on technical debt. And we're slowly going back to merging because our structure is very unique from a lot of other places who only have a council of governments. They don't have both. Mm. I mean, I, I think in general, I certainly welcome our metro overlords as, I mean, I think if there's anyone who can really make things work, it's people who understand flows of people between mm-hmm. regions. I mean, it's you, you came down here through the peninsula earlier today, yep. had to transfer at Millbrae, and it's just, uh, you read back how Santa Clara County just like unilaterally said, no, no thanks to Bart. Uh, now Millbrae is like, has a station not used <laughs> because it should be going down and it doesn't mm-hmm. uh, for BART. And it like, it essentially will never happen because now they've, you know, developed low density housing of where it should go. And mm-hmm. now it's, it's, it's gone forever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think if you imagine the entire region as being uh, a subway firm, best, <laughs> best optimizing for, you know, running it like it's running SimCity, that's probably almost a best case scenario mm-hmm. as kind of dystopian as that sounds. Yep. It's, it's the least bad. Uh, but yeah, and I would just say like, uh, 
I there's a lot of agency like Atherton is now like I think permanently closing its Caltrain station. Hmm. Like how does stuff like that even like happen? And uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that one's kind of really irritating, and I'm actually trying to get a bunch of other the arena committee members together to do something about that. Because one of the big things that goes into this this arena planning is consideration for future transit investments. And you know I made the really good point. A lot of people kind of got on board with it of. Uh, having BRT going down El Camino Real, which I didn't know at the time I was talking about that, that I guess it's been canceled or delayed or something. I mean, I, a lot of cities have been kind of voting on BRT yeah. lanes themselves piecemeal, which is only going to get you yeah. that much. But uh, cities, I think, I think at some point narrowly missed it. And you really need to, one, unify it and yeah, kind yeah. of really crack down. Because I mean, if I'm trying to get down El Camino, I have to transfer from the San Mateo buses to the Santa Clara buses. It's it's a it's a bummer, mm-hmm. uh, but I it's it's funny. Like really, like Hong Kong. I mean, it's Hong Kong back in the early '80s was like first looking at BRT mm-hmm. along its main spine, uh, and we're like we're just catching up with it now in the 2020s. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. But no, I mean, I think BRT would be incredible for El Camino. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Caltrain electrification is coming too, and that's billions of dollars we're putting into it. So to go back to to Atherton closing their station is, you know. Part of our planning on this kind of assumes that these stations are not just going to be closed. And even so, you know, if you go ahead and close it, you know, that's just going to hurt you guys later on because you're going to have to reopen it anyways once we push a bunch of housing onto you. So, you know, part of me is not too worried about it. The other part of me is, well, we need to get, you know, these planners and these people on the committee together to write a big ass letter to them and say, you know, don't do this. You're, You're messing up with our plan, you know. You're messing up with our plan and the regional R, as in the region, which includes Atherton. So, okay, your arena committee, about 35 people or so, uh, I mean, you make it sound like a lot of stuff is happening, a lot of stuff getting done. Uh, like, are there actual disagreements on, you know, theory or facts that are like people are butting heads a lot? Or can, are you actually all, you know, have the same uh, glorious uh, end goal in mind? Uh, so I think it's kind of a, a little ambitious to, to think of it as like a, a structured committee. You know, we don't make motions. We don't really vote on stuff. Think of it more like each meeting is sort of like a, like a, a community planning meeting. You know, everyone's got these big tables out and you sit with four other people and it's kind of like a workshop. And then, you know, staff comes around, gives you some instructions, some crayons, whatever, and you doodle your thing. And then they take that information later on and, and pull it all back together. Having said that, you know, there, there certainly are a couple people on the, the committee who are pushing back and have disagreements. I remember on, on the first day I was there, uh, someone, I, I won't say their name because I'm trying to, to make friends with them. Uh, someone said, you know, well, the answer is we just got to, you know, we got to start building single family homes out into the valley because, you know, that's what millennials want these days. And like, obviously, I disagree with that. <laughs> There's another, uh, and, and strictly speaking, that's outside of the jurisdiction of ABAG, right? Because they're yeah. saying let's build it outside of our area. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's there is you know a lot of undeveloped space, open space out in in the East Bay. Also happens to be park space, but that didn't seem to matter too much for this person. Um, so you know, people disagree about that. Um, there are still some other people who do agree with me. Like I found support with uh, other members of the Equity Coalition and some transportation nerds uh, to support the, the the mapping thing I'd mentioned changing it from per capita to, to per square foot or something. Um, one, there, there, you know, there's other people on there who have an interesting uh, take on their role on the committee. So the way I see this is like, you know, as a group, we are the regional planning body and we're looking out for the region. But there's still a couple, you know, elected officials who are like, oh, I represent, you know, 
Navarta or, or somewhere else. And I have an obligation to my constituents to make sure that we fight for, for just my little town. It's like, mm. that's literally not what you're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, there's people who disagree about the whole process about that. And, you know, that's going to be an uphill fight. But I think we've got younger staff who likes these things. We've got these statutory obligations that can really put a knife in some of these ideas. And, you know, we do have kind of a, a coalition of, you know, good, honest to goodness, you know, Yimbies, whether or not they call themselves Yimbies, lefties, Housers, Fimbies, all that, who do want to make this process work out right. You know, I'm, I'm sure later on when we get more into the mapping, people are going to say, well, you know, the Temescal Brew Pub, you know, that's a, that's a sensitive community and we got we to gotta worry about that. And like, okay, well, you know, we're going to get to that fight eventually, but let's all agree that Atherton has completely and utterly failed and we need to do something about that. I mean, I think that's so often you see, you know, people don't think regionally and it hurts them. Because if you say, what are things regionally we could be doing? Uh, mm-hmm. It's like SF, you know, for the fact that it's not the poorest in the area, it still is suffering displacement because Silicon Valley sucks. Mm-hmm. So SF should be putting the hammer down Silicon Valley. By the same token... Uh, people who are commuters in Contra Costa County are being punished by the fact that they have are having trouble living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. By the same token, people in Oakland are being displaced by the fa- the lack of San Francisco building housing. And I think if you say if you represent Contra Costa County, you really should be putting the hammer down in SF. Uh, but do people even really think that way? Not really. It which is like really frustrating. Um, but it's it's kind of I've noticed there's like a divide, certainly a divide uh, across like the younger and the older folks, because um, you know in the coalition, like the regionalist coalition, I'd say is part of the people I work with. You know that includes Jesse Aragine. You know outside of Berkeley, he's very good regionalist stuff. Um, uh, Mayor Schaff, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? He's a, a city councilor from Romer Park. Um, there's also, uh, Rick Manila, who's, uh, the mayor, San Mateo, former mayor. Mm. Um, he's great. And all these people are like working together on a regional thing, but yeah, there's totally a bunch of older folks out there who, you know, it's not all older folks, but it's mostly older folks who still think that we're living like these primitive communities of, you know, these cities are, are 16,000 miles apart and what happens here doesn't really affect the other. You know, if somebody spills a little bit of gas on the, on the, on the sidewalk, darn, well, we'll just clean that up. But like, really that does have an impact far outside of just your little town. And, you know, people are just not used to thinking in that for, for whatever reason, which is, you know, foreign to me as a person who comes from Northeast Ohio, where Northeast Ohio, you know, we act like a region. We, we act like everything impacts everybody out here. Uh, we're going back in Ohio a little bit later because I definitely want to talk uh, more. But, yeah, it's it's funny because I think it's, you know, the the answer for the real kind of, I would say, uh, you know, the main antagonists in my mind are the Livable California people, mm. the kind of people who are probably like the Embarcadero Institute here in Palo Alto, lovely institute, uh, puts out papers, one saying, you know, look at this. Cities are actually meeting their arena numbers. We're doing enough. And they have mm. another thing saying, you know, Gavin Newsom says we need 3.5 million. Here's why he's wrong. And uh, it's it's just kind of one. It's if it's it's in my mind, reverse engineering from the fact local control is sacrosanct and what do you do about it Mm -hmm. if you take local control as, you know, the thing you elevate more than anything. And in my mind, it's seems delusional and also horrific, but it's, it's kind of weird, uh, 
I mean, I wouldn't say weird. It's not surprising. It is incredibly attractive to most, you know, normies who just say, you know, I don't, I don't want to see anything change if you live in the suburbs out here. Yeah, and and you know, I can understand that. And you know, as an anarchist, you know, who likes self governance, I I kind of have some empathy for the folks who are fighting for local control, and I get that. But local control has consequences that are not local, and you know, that's a thing that people often forget about. So when folks are saying, you know, we need local control to figure out where we're going to put this housing for something or another, and then it's like, okay, well, you don't actually need local control for that. You need local control so that you can avoid the consequences of not doing it wrong. Yeah. But people don't think in terms like that because, again, going back to Rena, you know, we haven't had consequences forever, and that's you know that's just been the nature of California. It's just kind of how the Bay Area was was created is these cities seceding from each other because they don't want to have to think about regional consequences to their local control. It's, it's a one-way switch. It's very, very rare to ever see things merge in practice. I remember I was reading about uh, what it took for New York City mm-hmm. to merge the boroughs, uh, and it took like a very powerful senator uh, representing New York, like it took the fact that they were like really suffering trying to get their transit mm-hmm. uh, coordinated, uh, and they had to take Brooklyn kicking and screaming because Brooklyn wanted to stay independent, and they like uh, it was. I was reading over this more or less like Brexit uh, to mm-hmm. make it happen. They had like this non-binding vote, and then they finally uh, got these massive uh, you know power players to kind of smooth it out and make it happen. Uh, but you know, it's once you fragment these regions, it sucks. Yeah, I mean, it does. And like the times it actually works, it works out badly. Like San Jose had massive annexations of different suburbs because it wanted to grow, have mm-hmm. more power in the region. But it's like kind of the worst low density. And on its books, it's just all these liabilities and yeah. all these. Um, but okay, so as far as like blue sky thinking, as far as anarchy goes, I kind of talk about like I would really kind of imagine forced annexations as being like a major you know goal i'm just gonna is there any more like goofy you know anarchist ideas for like how regional governance works or is this kind of all uncharted territory uh i mean i've had this like idea that not a lot of other people share um only maybe just because they don't talk about it a lot but um and i've seen this in other places on the planet where there's sort of and i think new york city new york the state of new york has something similar to this where there's sort of like a so, so the way it is right now in the in the Bay Area, every every one of the 101 cities has its own planning commission. And then if you don't like how the outcome was, then you appeal it to the city council, and then you appeal it, or once it's denied, then you have to go to court. So what I would like to actually see is, you know, less one planning commission for each city, or sort of like a, a neighborhood advisory committee sort of thing for each neighborhood, which then, you know, they can say one way or the other, but then you appeal a decision from that to, you know, the citywide planning commission, and then you appeal from that to a regional planning commission and sort of have these, you know, these higher and higher, more regional views that you keep appealing to. Um, Because, you know, I think about the city of Oakland and our planning commission has its meetings in City Hall in downtown. And there's never a planning commission meeting out in the far east Oakland. And from an anarchist perspective, you know, not having that government around, you do kind of feel disconnected, like the city just doesn't care. Yeah. So I would like to see, you know, a local neighborhood region or something planning commission that makes these decisions. And yet they still can't, you know, just trump the regional concerns. You know, you can have your local control, but we still need a way to to show that regional concerns can trump that power. And I think having a regional planning commission body, something like that, is a great idea. 
It's it's funny how when you have one governing body over many different disparate communities, the powerful, rich, you know, white communities end up having a very large voice and the minority and disempowered communities don't, you mm-hmm. know. And I think, yeah, you, you can definitely say what we need is more kind of power for each community, but actually achieving that balance to make sure that it just doesn't flow to the powerful. Yeah. It's 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 kind of depressing because you kind of know that's just the nature of power. Yeah. And, and like about that, you know, a lot of people say we haven't heard, we, you know, we've got these voices that are unheard and we lift them up. That may be true, but I think what's also missing is some voices are just too loud <laughs> yeah. and we need to tone tone those voices down. And I think that's really what's missed a lot in these kind of discussions about oh, planning for whomst. Well, you know, right now it's planning for the loudest people. We need to make other people louder. Well, then you're just going to have a room of people yelling at each other. You know, that, that making it louder doesn't actually help. Some people need to take a seat and be yeah. quiet. Yeah. And it's when you have systems in place that kind of you preserve the people who are loudest and most selfish and you displace the people who are most vulnerable. It's a, it's a self-feeding cycle. Of yeah. Just getting more and more of them. Yep. Uh, so uh, the methodology committee, it's meeting up like through spring. Is this how this is working? Yeah. Uh, so we actually were supposed to have a meeting in February, but that one got canceled because uh, they staff needed some more time to refine and consolidate factors based on our robust feedback we gave in January. Mm. Um, so there wasn't one last month, but the next one is next uh, Thursday, I think. It's March 12th. It's the next one. And that's one where we're going to be talking about like some actual sample methodology. So we'll probably have some formulas available to, to look at and play with. And then after that is in April, supposed to be talking about income allocation. Um, in May is uh, some work with the Plan Bayer Area 2050 plan, which is separate from RENA, but still like kind of on the same level. Um, and then June is hopefully we're going to be finalizing the recommendations. And then they added in July to just save a spot if we need to keep going. Okay. But originally this was supposed to all end in May, but they, you know, like I said, they needed more time to do this and they wanted to do more alignment with Plan Bay Area. So they added two more months to it. So Plan Bay Area, I've heard of, but I'll admit, I don't know the details really at all. Can you describe more about what that's going to be doing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of conceptually like a, a general plan for the entire Bay Area. And it's, uh, you know, one thing that's in it is, you know, I was talking earlier about like the list of, you know, planned transit investments, like spending billions of dollars to electrify Caltrain. That's included into it. And it's like this kind of nexus for... Uh, these regional things to say, we're building transit here, so we should probably have more housing here, so we're going to direct it there. And then that kind of sets priorities for MTC's transit funding, which is ultimately what they do. They fund transit. And it kind of informs that, um, changes where that money goes. It also is uh, sort of like sort of like a roadmap. And kind of my hope is that later on, Plan Bay Area will actually get some teeth because as it is, you know, cities are more than welcome to just kind of ignore the whole thing. But I would like for that to be more binding in the future so we can say, you know, you're not going to expand your your urban growth around your urban growth boundary. But you'll also need to, you know, build more housing here and build more jobs. And these are problems. And this is where pollution's at. And we got to fix that. And it's, you know, it's this regional perspective. And it's, you know, very early in its stages. But I've got good hopes for it. And and who's who's running it if not ABAG MTC? 
Uh, it's ABAG MTC. Okay, so it is. So yeah. it's 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 separate from ABAG MTC's other concerns, but they yeah. they're in fact governing both agencies or both plans. Yeah, yeah. Plan Bay Area 2050 is like planning for what the bay looks like in 2050. Mm. Whereas this Rena cycle, like I said, is only eight years, and I think it's going to end in like 2030 or something. Gotcha. So we need something that's like longer than Rena that can inform multiple cycles. So they're in both plans: one's short term, one's long term. Yeah, yeah. So. One more question about Rena before we get to other topics. Uh, you're talking about all the variables that go into it. Uh, is land value <laughs> anywhere, you know, directly or indirectly included in any of these variables? Because I think it is, in my mind, an extremely reasonable thing to look at. Uh, that's a that's a good question. It doesn't stick out in my mind as one that we talked about too much. Um, we did certainly talk about other proxies for it. Um, we did talk about like household wealth, um, incomes. Uh, education quality, these sorts of things that uh, are, are, you know, very much proxies for the determination of like if an area is desirable, which informs land value. Yeah. Um, but I think there's kind of a consensus among the group, anyways, that like land value is, you know, we can't really put land value in dollars into the formula and get a good answer out of it. Certainly, we don't have assessment departments right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But but in, in terms of like accurately reflecting, you know, more equitable goals of like reducing pollution, you know, it, it's kind of hard to prove that land value is really tied to that. You know, I disagree with that, obviously, but yeah. a lot of people still feel that way. So it's not really in it right now. Um, but I feel there's enough coverage of everything else that contributes to land value that we're kind of close. Yeah, I, I hope to get there. I mean, I feel one thing, you talk about, <clears throat> even if income drops to zero when you're retired, when you have a $3 million ranch house, something is just really right, <laughs> just yeah. abhorrent. Yeah, nobody should own a million-dollar asset. Yeah, it's, it's pretty goofy. Uh, okay, so the other big topic, as far as anarchy goes, another <laughs> very na- non-anarchic uh, organization, the Central Committee of the Democratic Party of your Alame- district? Alameda uh, County. It's a county. Di- okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you, you ran and you won. Uh, yeah. So uh, talk about what they do, why you ran, what you're hoping to see accomplished. Uh, so the... Yeah, so I so I got elected, uh, not officially yet, but mathematically, it's impossible for me to lose at this point. We're still counting nice. ballots in Alameda County. You cinched it. Yep, uh, the Alameda County Democratic Central Committee Assembly District 18, and the way that each county's Democratic Party is split up, uh, so there's like the Alameda County Democratic Party, and you know, it's a big body of like 40, 60 some people composed of these smaller groups. Each one's an assembly district. So mine is Assembly District 18, Rob Bonta. And uh, there's 11 seats from that election who go on to be part of the county committee. Yeah. And there were 28 people running. I ran um, and uh, I did wildly great. Uh, turns out I'm currently, they just re- re- released an update to the to count last night. And I'm still in fifth place out of 28 people who ran, um, which is 8,533. 35 people right now who either looked at my name and thought it was really cool or looked at my name and Googled me and thought that I was really cool. Yeah. So, you know, there's 8,000 people who want more cities to do more city things. And now Yimbies and regionalists and urbanists have a seat at the table. And that's kind of why I ran. Um, Originally, I ran because a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan, had recruited me into this. Because what had happened was some folks uh, in our wing of the Democratic group, I guess, our, our kind of politics, uh, looked at the, the candidates who had already filed and said, this is no good. None of these people are great. It's kind of like importing a lot of San Francisco brand of progressive politics in, of like burning the bridge to, to spite the nose. And 
uh, so I was recruited into this and somebody said, you should run, you know, I, I will help you with this. And I was like, uh, okay. I have ambition to run for a bigger office later on. So I saw this as like a great opportunity for practice. And, and it was exactly that. And plus, you know, now we have a seat at some actual, some actual position to, to, to some, some levers of power to, to play around with. As far as your your campaign, as someone who wants to rock the boat, uh, you know, is is radical. How like did do you feel a need to hold back on that in order to to be to be electable, as it were? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I. So so one thing that I, I've kind of come come about or concluded with this run is, is like, you know, I. I used to be a really ma- really nasty person on Twitter for a lot of other various reasons. You know, I, I mostly attribute it to just being stuck into an environment of really nasty people. So it just kind of like rubs off. And I hated what it was doing to me. Yeah. And so one thing that I've learned since then, I had my come to Jesus moment a long time ago, is, you know, be nicer. And being nice, as it turns out, works. Because there's another person who was running for Central Committee who constantly, constantly harasses people on Twitter and is just angry and yelling and has like made threats against people. Um, and uh, they're not, they're not winning. I, although I say, I, I'm not sure if uh, Alfred's in your district. Alfred's no, no. Alfred's the nicest guy, mm-hmm. and he he, uh, he unfortunately isn't doing too well in his run for the central committee. Yeah, I, I heard people say that he depended too much on students to vote and students don't vote. But I, I think that's part of it. Um, I don't, you know, yeah, they were in a different district than mine. They were in 15. I yeah. was in 18. I don't know the politics of that district too much. Yeah, um, but it. You know, it's a lot of people at the top who I don't recognize. But your district likes nice people. Yeah, my district likes nice people. It likes people who, uh, you know, they're not... Yeah, we, we just like nice people who are intersectional. My district is not a very white district at all, so it's very different than Berkeley. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of homeowners, a lot of single-family homes. It's also a lot of renters and a lot of people who ride transit. Um, and it also includes all of Alameda, the city of Alameda. Mm. So there's that demographic. There's Fruitvale. There's San Leandro. Um, just all of East Oakland, south of the freeway. You know, if you could imagine the the demographic of that place, that's the kind of people that I'm like going for. Compare that to Berkeley, which is you know, much wealthier, much whiter. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's and <laughs> I mean, as much as they have kind of hippie branding, I would just say inherently more conservative. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the central committee they meet is it monthly or something? Yeah, so they meet monthly and uh it's, you know, it's in San Leandro library. They get like 60 some tables out and everyone gets around and we all have like a meeting with Robert's rules and and all that, you know, moving things and voting on stuff. And uh it's uh, I'm not exactly 100% sure what we're going to work on yet. Um, yeah. I mean, it's constantly changing. Uh, but it's things like, you know, the, managing the the finances for the party for the county. But it's also like directing endorsements of the party. Um, I get, uh, I don't fully understand the statewide process, but uh, I have some influence over state delegates for the state convention. Um, I think I might be like towards the front of the line for being one. Mm. Um, if not selecting people. Um, it's supporting local clubs, getting people excited about it, doing organizing, running phone banking. Um, like for example, on Webster street, right behind my house, there's this like little tiny California democratic party office that's been doing phone banking for candidates and, uh, and not, not just presidential, but like statewide. 
um, or, or nationwide. Um, and a few years ago, the, the California party came in to use East Bay for everyone's big organizing space in downtown Oakland to do a bunch of phone banking for Stacey Abrams. So like coordinating those sorts of things uh, for statewide, nationwide is kind of like part of the work of doing that. My, my impression is kind of the power of the party is meaningful insofar as most people care or don't care. When you don't care, an endorsement will like swing everything because no one's paying attention. Yeah. As opposed to it was kind of demoralizing to see the state Democratic Party endorse Kevin DeLeon uh, and he lost, you know, to Diane Feinstein, <laughs> yeah. who ran for reasons I still don't intuit uh, mm-hmm. at her age. But uh, I mean, I think at the local races, most people, yeah, just don't really follow it at all, as opposed to people know Diane Feinstein's name. Right. Yeah. Like, like the local endorsement of the Alameda County Party doesn't really matter, except to people for whom it matters. Um, for a lot of people, it doesn't, and they don't really care. And in some places, you know, that might be like a negative endorsement. But what's what really matters more than the endorsements is just this kind of networking, as one does in any political uh, society. Is you know you're part of the Democratic Party now, so I know a lot of, or I will know more Democratic Party officers and operatives and people who are just very well connected. I mean, you don't get you know right now that I think the top place for uh, my race is Pamela Price, who's got like thirteen thousand votes. You don't just get thirteen thousand votes without knowing everybody in town. Yeah. And then being able to ask those people. So, sure, the party may endorse one thing, but that doesn't matter if, you know, a person who knows 13,000 people isn't going to tell their people to follow it. Uh, question as far as, like, Oakland, is Oakland entirely ranked choice voting? Uh, or in some races? I've yeah, heard... so so for the, the city proper, for, for city elections, like city council, mayor, that's ranked choice. Yeah. Um, the Demo- the DCCC election is not because it's the top 11 winners. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's more of approval voting in yeah, that yeah. sense. But I mean, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering because like the one of the, the perks for the, uh, you know, ranked choice is you don't have to settle for the only game in town. Uh, you know, in this case, the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. you should see more comp- competition from Green Party, explicitly socialist parties, other et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that is that true in Oakland? Is the Green Party even meaningful out there or the what party? Is that a, is that really how it is? <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a lot of people outside the Democratic Party in yeah. Alameda County. It, it's kind of interesting. Uh, like, there's a lot of folks in Alameda County who are very progressive. You know, they they complain about the the the, the DNC doing things one way or the other. But at the same time, you know, it's it's maybe I just live in a bubble, but there's a lot of people who are just in part of the Democratic Party and they pay attention to it and they're involved with it. And if you're in politics in the East Bay, you're inevitably intertwined with it, as I've learned. I mean, earlier I was comparing Reno to the Goss plan. This certainly feels like the uh, Politburo or something. Yeah, it just, it, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> it's the uh, you know, only game in town. You have to be part of it, but you have to kind of like, you know, earn your way through it. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as I mean, it sounds like you're covering a lot of territory, like like. Just was it really just? I mean, I, I was hearing you doing a ton of canvassing and yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there was you know, I did canvassing in the sense of standing out at a Bart station, handing out flyers. Uh, I went to farmers markets. I handed out flyers, um, and it wasn't actually until like the last two days before the election that I actually saw other candidates doing it in mm. earnest. Um, and you started how early? Uh, so I think I actually. Pulled papers to run November or October. No, it was like December. It was like the day before the deadline. Do you have the signatures to do that? Or? Yeah, yeah, you got to get signatures for that. I got that. Uh, like 25 for this, I oh, think. Oh, that's, that's not hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so so that was that was the easy part and then i you know went off on new year's had a holiday and it wasn't i, I didn't actually start campaigning in earnest until like the beginning of february and then I got a flu for a week, so which like knocked out a whole week of campaigning, which was really irritating. Yeah. Despite all that, I still got a pretty good rank. And uh, what was most interesting about this campaign, which was most exciting for me, is like um, for a lot of people who who do these kind of small time campaigns, you know, they don't really raise a whole lot of money, especially not enough to file reports, um, which for the, for the uh, Fair Practices Politics Commission at the, the state level. Um, and the threshold for that is once you raise or spend $2,000, you have 24 hours, if it's within 10 days of the election, to file. So on like Monday, uh, not this past Monday, but like the Monday before, um, this this uh, journalist, Darwin Bond Graham, who him and I have been sparring online for you know four years or something at this point. He's very anti-MB and I'm me. And he... Uh, we like ended up raising two thousand bucks just randomly the week before, and so that meant ah uh, crap. Now so, we gotta... so you're campaigning and also fundraising at the same time, or is it just like one and the same? It's all the same, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all it's all the same. And so you know, once I hit that threshold, then which we were using to spend on some like phone banking stuff to do, uh, and then once I filed, suddenly Darwin Bon Graham tweets out the filings and is like, "Oh man, look at look at Victoria Fierce, funded by tech workers." Yeah. And I turned that into this huge fundraising opportunity. It's like, oh no, the socialist candidate got paid for by labor. Oh no. And just his one tweet raised like $2,500 and put me to $5,000. Nice. It's, it's, I mean, that was actively irritating uh, for him uh, saying, I think he even said tech companies by talking about people who work for tech companies, which boy, as far as like a class analysis to say that every worker is aligned with their boss, you know, that's just so gross. What what was really really funny about it is like one of the bigger donors is actually this this friend of mine who works for the Wikimedia Foundation you know oh, that, big, that very big, big large tech. heavily yeah big tech heavy capitalist big free open source free culture Wikipedia the fun thing is is it is uh actually Randian insofar it's 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 the funniest thing in the world the biggest yep. communist thing ever done is is done by a Randian but yeah <laughs> I was having a good Saturday until you just mentioned that but I mean, I'll say it. As long as you're doing good stuff, I don't really yeah, care yeah. what's going on inside your your brain. Yeah, but yeah, it it was it was great to like have that, and like I, I joked about it. I was like, "Hey, Darwin, thanks for being the newest volunteer to the campaign. You know, you've helped me raise all this money. It's great. I'll send you a thank you card." And then he's angry about it. It's like, you know, this is this is slander. You can't really say that. You know, this is you're just making this stuff. I'm like, okay, sure, buddy, but you helped. <laughs> thank you. Very 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 funny. Uh, so I guess you're, I mean, uh, since you said you clinched, uh, that's coming up in like a number. You're, are you actually inaugurated? Is that a thing? <laughs> uh, I don't actually. Well, for one, Alameda County is still counting like over half the ballots are still yet to be counted. Sure. So once that's done, then it'll get certified, at which point I will have officially won. So it's all unofficial right now. But okay. mathematically, it's impossible for me to drop out of the top 11. And then even then, I don't take office or, or take my seat until next year. It's kind of absurd. Oh wow! Yeah, really? I know. Yeah, yeah. The, so, why, why is this held in the primary election? That's a, that's that's bizarre. It's a good question. <laughs> that's it's a, a very fair... good question. Do you think you you think it would have been uh, different if it was a November election? Uh, because you get more homeowners, you get a more kind of the you know, old fuddy duddies during the I think primaries maybe. I know it's, it's hard to tell because I think this primary was like an exceptionally popular one. Yeah, being I mean, the presidential and all that. The Bernie campaign put out you know a, yeah. a really good campaign in California, obviously. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, 
So uh, one one more topic and very very important. Uh, you're you're always going on about Northeast Ohio mm-hmm. uh, being the superior region of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first off, I mean, just talk about uh, you know Akron and Cleveland's relationship and just what's going well in Akron, what's going badly in Akron. Because I mean, also is I mean, uh, I my, my mom's side of the family's from Elyria, Ohio. I'm from the Cleveland area. I don't really know a oh, ton about cool. Akron. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Akron is the only real city on the planet. It's about 50 miles south of Cleveland, um, the village of Cleveland. And uh, they're they're doing some good things. They're doing some not great things. Um, right now, like the region's been kind of, the regional planner has been infatuated with the whole Hyperloop idea and this like stupid train that's not going to go anywhere and do anything. When like, you know, when, so when I moved, moved, before I moved out here uh, about like seven, 10 years ago now, uh, there wasn't really like a super strong like transit advocacy kind of environment. And now there is. And now there's people who are like, you know, we are fighting for a train, any train at all between Akron and Cleveland. Um, we're fighting for all this stuff. Uh, and Cleveland, Cleveland has a great central station in the heart of downtown. Yeah, Tower City is, is a wonderful station. It could be a lot better. Um obviously but like as far as you know cities that go with subway stations you wouldn't expect cleveland to have something that great and that big and it's great yeah i so i mean as far as i mean okay so you also speak negatively about cincinnati uh speak on that please (laughs) i'm only talking about ohio cities though yeah yeah yeah. i mean in ohio oh you're calling kentucky (laughs) i yeah uh cincinnati's fine um it's just like a Ohio thing to like make fun of it, because um, they're not part of Ohio. I think ev- everyone is aligned to make fun of Columbus. I think that's, that's yeah, that's yeah, Col- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's guaranteed. That's like written in the state constitution. Um, Cincinnati's fine. They seem to be doing all right. I don't have a lot of connections to people there, so I can't really say too much about what's going on. Okay. But I do know that the city of Akron just ripped up our downtown Main Street to uh, get rid of cars and put in some bus lanes and bike lanes, and people are pumped about it. I mean, I would say I don't think that's that's nice. I mean, Cincinnati right now is going through kind of like a second wave of of urban renewal. Mm-hmm. It's gross. They gutted the West End uh, decades ago. Now they're putting a MLS stadium there. It's 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 yeah, tendentious. But mm-hmm. I mean, also this like as far as you know, doing stuff about working in Palo Alto and then going back like and seeing on the ground in Cincinnati. Uh, I mean, I imagine it might be similar. It's like as far as it seems here, upzoning is the answer so much of the time. In Cincinnati, I'd say there's very few places I even think it's the right tool in the box. Right, yeah. Like, it's, and this is the thing I, I talk about a lot uh, in my role as, like, an outspoken advocate is, like, you know, sure, a lot of people out here in the Bay Area are complaining, oh, there, there's too many people working out here. There's too many people moving in, not enough housing. Cleveland and Akron is, like, literally the opposite problem. I moved out here because there wasn't enough jobs. We have a lot of vacant housing, a lot of empty housing, a lot of cheap housing. We need jobs. Um, and you know, if you if you also look at you know the fact that the opioid crisis is kind of centered in this Midwest region, this Appalachia region. Um, and in fact, like the lawsuit that everyone's talking about that goes against the opioid manufacturers was put forward by Summit County, the county that Akron is in. Mm. And you know, we're just so depressed ever since the Rust Belt started to really rust away. You know, that's why people turn to opioids and do those sorts of things. So it's, you know, people are working on just making the region, you know, happier place to be. And, you know, having transit is a big part of that and organizing for, you know, dense urbanist things. It also means that there's a lot of folks out there who don't necessarily subscribe to the whole growth, growth, growth kind of mentality of uh, more capitalist sort of things. 
um, which is why we've got a lot of people who are part of this this uh, this news co-op called the Devil Strip in Akron, and they're like the first of its kind nationwide co-op of you know these kind of lefty communist socialist sort of people. I'm not going to speak for them, but that's my opinion of them, uh, who want to build a community and build these good ties and and you know show people that the city of Akron is really awesome for what it is. Because there's still a lot of people who are, you know, depressed about losing jobs and things moving out. And that's fair. That's why I moved out, too. But also, there's some really amazing stuff. And, you know, we need to get people excited about it. And that's what they're doing. And that's what I was doing before I moved out. And I'm really glad to see it continue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's around here, it's depressing so much of the time. Like, I want to establish community land trusts, cooperatives. But, boy, you're priced out Mm because you can't get your foot in the door. In so many places that are pressed, it's also a great opportunity for people to create self-sufficient, self, you know, self-run yep. places. Because if you can, you know, actually put in your own uh, work to make it run, it's the opportunity is right there, like under you. Oh yeah, and and that's like a popular thing is you know there's a lot of co-ops out there compared to to the Bay Area. Um, yeah, sure. A lot of people say you know we we need full communism and public housing and social housing, and then you go to Akron and people are like, uh, we don't have enough people to fill the public housing we don't have enough people to fill the social housing yeah and that's what people talk about like in general it's like oh it's like oh we can solve homelessness tomorrow we have enough vacant properties but like i it's unfortunately the problem is where the opportunities are and where the you know housing is vacant are not well mm-hmm. aligned i mean almost by almost by design as far as the systems go yep like the jobs housing imbalance here because like rena tries to make housing work to predict and align itself with jobs but there's nothing combining the two in any strict sense yep uh, i mean is that kind of is that realistic to imagine that you could really just put really hard linkages between jobs and housing directly because uh, I feel like we're doing a lot of kind of planning on the edges to try to make things work, but we don't really try to actually make it happen. And we could. If you said you cannot literally have a job created in your city until you actually create a housing unit, you know, uh, a city like Palo Alto would actually do that. Uh I don't. I mean, I used to think that jobs housing imbalance was like a big deal and as a big contributor, and I, I still think it is, but not as big or as important as it has been to me in the past. Because um, if you look at, for example, San Francisco, you know they have pretty much full employment because if you're unemployed, you just simply can't afford to stay there. So yeah. it's a little weird to me to like tie together jobs and housing in that way when what we should also be thinking about is, you know, increasing wages for people, making transit cheaper and, and more accessible. And yes, of course, building more housing. But like, I think it's a little short sighted to just think about jobs and housing. Um, you know, people need access to medical facilities. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know a lot of friends who just, you know, they can't work. Jobs housing balance isn't really going to help them. But if they if we do some planning based on how close you are to a really high quality Kaiser hospital, that would greatly improve their life. Yeah, I think when they depart badly, you know, the real world is that actually exists is going wrong. But you're right that it does reflect the world as it is and not the world as it should be. Yep. And those could really, really change. So actually, we're, we're uh, running uh, at, towards the end of the show. Uh, any other uh, topics you want to make sure we cover that we haven't yet? Or uh, Not really. Um, I'm just excited to have won this thing and the election's done. And now I can like actually take a break and think and yeah. have a good weekend for once. I'm not at a uh, flea market catching the flu. 
Yeah, it's been, it's been a like. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's the real bummer here. It's like everyone has <laughs> been so overextended uh, mm-hmm. because of the primary season. We're finally get a breather, and everyone's kind of in like semi lockdown for coronavirus. You know, yeah. it's a bit of bit of a bummer. But uh, like, so how how optimistic are you that the you know central committee, that the methodology committee is you know you know doing the right thing, doing enough, or at least you think it's making like a, a real positive difference? I think Rena is is going to be radically different this time around. Uh, I've been watching these other groups around the state who, uh, I think, oh, where was it? It was like SCAG or SANDAG or one of the, yeah. the Southern California ones. And the the first proposal they put forward, the first methodology, like severely under allocated to expensive areas. And then they implemented this or, or they, they activated this uh, proportional voting system, which they have to like, you know, you have a regular vote and then you have a proportional vote if you don't like the first one. And then the proportional vote pushed forward with this really high transit-oriented, high-density, good desegregating plan. And, you know, I think the Bay Area is going to do really good on that front, too. Um, I do have allies on the committee. I do have friends. We've pushed for things. I'm really excited about this one map change that came through because, you know, I don't necessarily agree with people who work for Choo Choo or uh, East Bay Housing Organizations. These, like, affordable housing consortiums because they're you know there's uh, these same folks who say you know we've built too much market housing we need to build nothing and yet all of us agreed that the transit planning map was completely wrong and bad and yeah. and i think that was great so i think we're gonna i think we're gonna do good as far as the central committee you know it, i don't take office till next year it's kind of hard to say i haven't yeah. really thought too much about it but you know i i i think having my ideas in the background I come from, being a former Pirate Party member, being a former EMB, being an organizer of East Bay for Everyone, this law person, I think those groups, these groups that I'm with, are going to have a good seat at the table, which we've never had before. Yeah, and then and Carla is your other, you know, mm-hmm. main, main thing. We didn't talk about that at all. Uh, hopefully, you come back at some point yeah. and you talk about what's going on with there. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's exciting stuff. Uh, so yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming down here again. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to have me on. We have been hearing from Victoria Fierce all about Rena methodology, and much, much more. You can find all previous episodes of this show at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Kaiser Shoe, Stanford. 